Good morning, everyone. Blessing to see you all this morning. We're going to be continuing on in our study of the book of Romans. Um, we are back in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is um, it's known as the high point in the New Testament. It's a, uh, certainly a glorious portion of scripture. I mentioned to you last time that there was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Manton who wrote 47 sermons just on chapter 8. Just on chapter 8. It is so wonderfully deep. Um, he averaged less than one verse per sermon. We're going to be going through seven verses this morning and I hope it's a blessing to you. So uh, Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me and we'll begin our reading from verse 5. The scripture says here, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Let's pray. Father, an infinite book, dear Lord, we have before us. A book so profound. A book that has changed the style of history a book that has transformed the world in more ways than we can possibly imagine. We know, dear Lord, that this book contains the words of eternal life, dear Father, for all that believe, but also contain for us who do believe an avenue of growth and maturity and love and desire and peace and hope and joy that is beyond expression. We ask you, dear Father, this morning that you would be with us, dear Lord, as we study this wonderful chapter, and that you would guide us into all truth. We thank you, dear Father, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Contrasts. There's several contrasts in this passage. Contrasts are something that we really can't live without. We sort of need contrasts. Contrasts help us distinguish... Um, Different things that we see. I mean, we, look, we, we live in a world filled with colour. Colour's pretty important. If you don't have colour, then it's very difficult to see anything. Could you imagine this entire world being one colour? I'm not talking different shades, I'm talking one colour. You can't see anything. You can't distinguish the trees from the sky. You couldn't be able to distinguish anything. But contrast is something that we both can see something clearly through, but also they can provide an avenue of understanding of that which is contrary, something that is opposed to something else. And that's what we've got here. We've got four contrasts that are contrary one to the other. And there's four points that I'm going to be bringing out again. Um, and they are... That there is a contrast of mind in man. In verse 5. There is a contrast of manner in man. Verses 6 and 8. 6 to 8. There is a contrast of possession of man. Verses 9 and 10. And there is a contrast of promise to man. Verse 11. The first portion is there is a contrast of mind in man. And we see that in verse 5. It says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. 
what we see here is a contrast of, of mind in man. One that's after the flesh and another one that's after the spirit. Well, note there's three short items that I just want to bring out just on this point. And the first one is that there is a contrary state from which each of us have our minds set. There's a contrary state. For they that are after the flesh and for they that are after the spirit, each of us have a basis from which we have our desires, from which we have our understanding of life, and from which we, uh, from which impels our actions. I'm not. I'm not talking about a worldview. I'm not talking about your particular worldview. I'm not even talking about um, how you've been brought up and what you've been led to think. That's not what the text here is referring to. The script, scripture here speaks expressly of that which is a part of the very inner being of man. All right, our very inner being. For they that are after the flesh, and for they that are after the spirit. So those that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, and those after the spirit the things of the spirit. It's that which they follow after. It's that which they directly follow after. To the one, there is that nature of flesh alone. It's what it's what leads them to mind the things that are akin to their nature. Okay? So to the other is the nature of the spirit which indwells them. All right? Of them that are to mind the things according to that which now indwells them, namely the spirit of God. You'll see that in the text here, when it speaks about that which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit, you'll notice that the word spirit is in capital. It's a capital S. It's not a spirit, it's the spirit. It's the spirit. It's speaking here expressly of the third person of the Trinity. It's speaking here expressly of that, because we see that also in verse 9, don't we? We see that it's the Spirit of God. And we see it also as the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit emanates from both the Father and the Son. No one knows how that works. We don't understand that. But it's that Spirit that the Scripture is speaking about. So what we want to consider is that in the text that we've got in front of us, this is that which is very natural to these two types of individuals. The inner thoughts and desires are both in line with their respective natures, but that we also see in this passage that these natures are contrary the one to the other, and that's the second item of this, of this, um, of this first point. These states are contrary to one another. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. Turn your books to, in your Bibles to Galatians, chapter 5. What we'll notice with this is that these two states differ. Uh, they do so, uh, they do, they're, they're not alike, they're not the same, they're actually, they're actually contrary to one another. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is, is speaking here and he's, and he's talking about the wrestling of the spirit with the, uh, with the flesh. And he says in verse 16, he says, This I say then. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. We, we spoke about it in a, previous, in a previous message when we were dealing with Romans chapter 7, and, and we spoke about how those that are Christian, the, the born-again person, the one that has the Spirit of God that dwells in them, has more than one nature. He has two natures. He has both the Spirit of God dwelling in him, but he also maintains the flesh. And we also noted that there was a battle. I'm not going to repeat all of that here. If, if you want to really dig that up, read Romans chapter 7. Uh, and you can also listen to the sermon online that was presented on that. Suffice to say that they that are after the flesh can only mind the things of the flesh. They can only mind the things of the flesh. They have no capacity whatsoever to mind anything of the Spirit because no Spirit is in them. Okay, And the Spirit of God certainly is not there in dwelling them. And that's why it says in, in verse 8, it says, They that are after the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God. There's only one nature in them that drives them and there is only one desire for them and that is that which is contrary to the Spirit. These are contrary, the one to the other. 
The Bible actually refers to them as slaves to sin. It's incredible how often I'd be speaking to somebody and sharing the gospel with them, and they say, well, mate, you know, I mean, you guys are, you know, you guys are slave to all these rules, but I'm free. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. doesn't understand that I can do whatever I want too, but what I want is very different from what they want. See, they're slaves to sin. They cannot do that which is good. Not in the eyes of God, they can't. So those that are after the Spirit, however, though they mind the things that are of the Spirit, they do it not perfectly. As we can recognise even by the context of this chapter. Have a look at, have a look at verse 12 and 13. Just skip down a little bit. Just pass and we're going to be dealing with this next time. And this is, the, this is the point of the encouragement. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So, those that are after the Spirit, though minding the things of the Spirit, are encouraged also to mortify, that is to kill, the deeds of the body. That's the lust of the flesh, those things that are in the flesh. So we have that, that nature within us. The point is that these two natures, however, are contrary one to the other. The third, the third item on this is that the desires of the minds are also contrary. Okay, there's no more diametrically opposed considerations than that which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit. Now remember, when I spoke about the spirit... It's speaking about the very inner nature, the very inner being of the individual, and that's the Spirit of God. Okay? We can't think of anything that's more contrary than the flesh to the Spirit. We, we can't even perceive of it. We can't even think that there's anything in the world that, that even comes close to matching the distinction between the Spirit of God and the nature of the flesh. Darkness and light doesn't do it. We look at darkness and we look at night, but we look at darkness. Darkness itself is measured in terms of light. You know, so th- that's not a perfect distinction. That's not a perfect contrast. You know, we could talk about cold and heat. Although we've got the same problem. I mean, cold is basically an absence of heat, but it's measured in degrees of heat. So again, we don't have that perfect, diametrically opposed idea. Um, you can look at height and depth. Again, we, we don't have a perfectly opposed idea there because even depth is measured by altitude. It measures in degrees of altitude. So, we again, we don't have a distinctive and a perfect description of something that is diametrically opposed as we do with respect to the flesh and the Spirit of God, the Spirit that the Scripture is speaking about. So, the only place that we can actually find that distinction is in Scriptures. So, turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And we're looking at chapter 3. Now, 2 Timothy here, he's speaking about the state of the church in the last days. And this is really, really important to be able to understand. But it's also vitally important for those of you who have been around a little bit and you've been amongst other churches and you've seen other churches and you've looked at Christianity through the lens of the churches that you might have attended or even through the lens of just that which you've experienced on a day-to-day basis by those who call themselves Christians. Okay, so really, really important text. It's speaking about the last days. We'll start from verse 1 in chapter, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And he says, from such, turn away. Each description evidences that which is contrary to the Spirit of God. We are meant to be lovers of God and here we are lovers of our own selves and lovers of pleasure. You're still there. Turn back a little bit to 1 Corinthians. Have a look at another description that's given, us, given to us in chapter 6. And he speaks here with a greater detail with those that are lost. Those that don't know Christ. Now that was the description. Interesting, isn't it? You know what I just read in Timothy? 2 Timothy? Did you realise that? That's the description of the state of the church. Right? It's a pastoral epistle. Paul is speaking to Timothy 
and warning him about the days that are to come. Here in Corinthians, we've got a very similar description, but it's to those that are lost. You see, the description that's given to us in Timothy always applied to those that are lost. But there it's speaking about the state of the church. Interesting, isn't it? And frightening. Especially when you can look around us and see what the church is like. But have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll just take our text from verse 9. And he speaks about a future state of these individuals. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see that? How important that is? The distinction between the, between the two. He says, but, but such were some of you, but ye are washed. What are we washed by? Washed by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's contrary to the flesh. It's contrary to the flesh. Now, you're still in Romans. I hope you've still got a finger there. You need to always keep it there. But turn to the first chapter. Turn to the first chapter of Romans. This is the last portion that I want to deal with. And it speaks even more clearly about the state of those who once knew God who once knew God, but they did not want to retain God in their knowledge anymore. They knew God. Every single person on earth has an innate knowledge of God. But at some point, that is lost. At some point, they have deceived themselves enough to reject the reality of who God is. So you don't need to do apologetics and try and prove that God exists. They've been doing that for millennia. But there's no need because every man knows God. And they know they know God. Even when I hated God, I knew I knew him. I knew he existed. I had no problems being able to identify his characteristics by simply saying, well, if God exists, why does let bad things happen? I'm not going to go into it, but there's five particular points that actually shows the character of God just within a sentence that denies his existence. And here he says this in the first chapter of Romans. I hope you were there. Sorry, in verse 28. Verse 28. And he speaks about them and he says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You see, this is a state that is contrary to the Spirit of God. Now compare that. Compare that to the blessed man of Psalm 1. The blessed man of Psalm 1 whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This is the man with the Spirit of God in him. His fruit is that inner change described in the fifth chapter of Galatians. Fifth chapter of Galatians simply says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such things there is no law. Also, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, which simply says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. How much does that contrast the fruit of the flesh? Can you see the contrast? And that results... In a, such a love for the Lord, such a love for God, that even the first verse of the 42nd Psalm becomes their heartfelt catch cry, where he says, As the heart, that is the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. That's the desire of the one with the Spirit of God. So, 
we've seen just in this first point that there is a contrast of mind in man. Right? That there's a contrast of the state from which each of us have our minds set. That these states are indeed contrary, the one to the other. And finally, that we compare the contrary desires of the mind. The second point of the message this morning is that there is a contrast of manner in man. There is a contrast of manner in man. We'll take our text from verse 6 of chapter 8. And the text says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. There is indeed a contrary manner in man. The text tells us that to be carnally minded is death. Why? Why to be carnally minded is death? Well, it answers the question. It says there, it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So that's his manner. It's against God rather than with God. The result of the carnal mind is death. It can't abide with God because it is contrary to God, therefore it must die, both physically and eternally, if man remains in that state at the end of his life. Now contrast that to the manner of the spiritual mind. The manner of the spiritual mind, however, is life and peace. Adam's fall led to death. It's the end result of the carnal mind. It's the state of the flesh. It must die. Jesus, however, came to give life and to give it more abundantly in John 10.10. The long-term state of the carnal mind will eventually find itself in death because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. This word enmity first appears in Genesis chapter 3 and Pastor Frank gave us an, an understanding of that when he spoke about the nature of the serpent, the devil and the woman and the seed. It's a prolonged ongoing hatred and it is rarely ever reconciled. I say rarely, I say rarely. I read a number of years ago Jonathan Edwards who he actually taught that enmity is that which cannot be reconciled. But scripture, scripture actually teaches opposite. It actually says it can be reconciled. We see two portions of that in Scripture. One of them is where God has reconciled you to himself, though you are at enmity. Okay. So it can be reconciled, but it is indeed a long-term, ongoing hatred of those things. And he says here, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it, that's the carnal mind, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Why can't the carnal mind or the natural mind be subject to the law of God? Why can't it be? Because the law of God is that spiritual law that it's contrary to the nature and not possibly received by them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Now they might, they might indeed adhere to certain things of the law. We look at the Ten Commandments and it's no question that the carnal mind and the natural man has a tendency to like there's certain things in the law that he abides by, you know. We, we follow a form of idolatry. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I agree with that. That one, oh, disobedient to parents, obedient on your parents, not sure about that one, you know. Um, don't covet, well, that's a hard one to sort of keep. Don't lie, well, that's another one that's a little bit tough to keep. Um, but they will pick and choose as elements of the law that they will assent to. But give them, a, give them a bit of breathing space. Give them a moment. Give them a thought. Give them a, give them a point at which they will desire to do something of their own flesh and the things of the law of God will play second fiddle. Don't underestimate man's ability to rationalise anything. He will have no problems calling something which God calls evil and he will look at it as good. Now Isaiah makes that clear, scripture makes that clear, the woe unto that person that calls evil good and good evil, that gives darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is what's happening in the world today. We see this happening all the time. Why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It can't be subject to the law of God because the law of God is spiritual. 
It's that of the Spirit. It emanates from the Spirit. It was given by the Spirit of God. There's, a, uh, there's an effort in the United States. There's an organisation there called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And they do everything all the way through the United States where there are the Ten Commandments seen on a placard, on stone, in a monument of some form or another. If it's found on public land, they work to have it removed. The very foundation of the United States was on the Ten Commandments. That's why these commandments are planted in front of every single courthouse and building in the United States. The public officers that are there have the Ten Commandments as their foundation because that's what the US was built on. Why do you think it became a great nation? Why do you think? Why do you think it became the greatest nation on earth? Because the commandments of God are the very laws in which the entire universe is governed. It's tuned around the law of God. And when we reject the law of God, we reject it to our own demise. Now look at what's happening. Have a look at the United States today as a perfect picture of those that have well and truly fallen away from the truth of Scripture. Still a Christian nation, as far as we can understand. Most households in the United States, I dare say, would have a Bible and a lot of them would even have the authorised version. But what do we see dominating the land? The political landscape, unbelievers. Complete unbelievers. The education system, unbelievers. The economic system, well, that speaks for itself. As long as you can continue to print money and borrow money to get out of debt and gives you an understanding that they don't even understand basic logic. So we have the carnal-minded enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Why? Because it's of the flesh. Because it's of the flesh. Compare that. Compare that for those that delight in the law of God. There are those that delight in the law of God. Where are we? Have a look at... Have a look at chapter 7 of the book of Romans, just for a second. Paul gives us an understanding of the heart of those who have the Spirit of God in them. Because remember how I mentioned to you, remember how I mentioned to you that there's two natures within us? Those that are born again have two natures. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We also have the flesh. We saw that in Galatians, these two wrestle one with another. They fight one with another. So there is an inner wrestling for the people of God. And there is no wrestling for those that don't have the Spirit, you see. I don't have any problems as long as I don't get caught. You seen the T-shirts? It's only illegal if you get caught. Yeah. They actually wear those things with pride, but they believe them. And everybody that's of the flesh believes that. As long as I don't get caught, it's all good. It's all good doesn't really matter but those with the spirit of god they get caught all the time why because the spirit convicts them within them we grieve the spirit of god within us and we are convicted of our own selves that's what happens that's what happens have a look at paul's struggle in chapter 7 in romans from verse 18 he says for i know that in me and he gives us the qualifying parenthesis there that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He still has sin dwelling within him. He says, I find a law, I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I, what? Delight in the law of God. After the inward man. I delight in the law of God. Now can you imagine any man who is after the flesh delighting in the law of God? No, these are contrary one to the other. There's a contrast here. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Read on verse 23. He says, but I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death, which is in my members. And look at his, look at his absolute grief here. Oh, wretched man that I am, 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul's delight is after the same spirit that authored and gave us the very law of God. And this is an unusual, guys. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it so much in the Old Testament. The psalmist writing in the same spirit, and he says, but I... But his law is in the law, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. We spoke about Psalm one. Psalm forty says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Psalm 119.70 says, Their their heart is as is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. Verse seventy seven of the same chapter says, Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Verse 92 of the same chapter says, Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. Verse 174 says, I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. And we can see here that there is indeed a contrast of manner in man. There's a contrast of manner. There's a contrast of desire within them. Third point here is that there is a contrast of possession of man in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 8 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's a contrast of possession of man. Either the Spirit of God is in you, or you are none of his. Or the Spirit of God is in you, or you are none of his. Notice, notice the text doesn't say if any, if any, um, if any have not the works of the Spirit. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say if any man have not the works of the Spirit. It says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It doesn't say if any man have not the influences of the Spirit. It says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It doesn't say if any man does not have the general results of character which comes from the Spirit. It says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. (coughs) Guys, you can be baptised. You can be the longest serving member of a church. You can sing with the people of God. You can pray like no man has ever prayed. You can pastor a church. You can be the most appealing of leaders and do the greatest of works You can cook and cater for every event and play the most holy of instruments and give the most abundant amount of money and attend every church service and prayer meeting and leadership meeting and any other event put on by the church. But if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He is none of his. This is the great equaliser. This is the equaliser. This is the one that links the door person to the pastor, to the preacher. This is the equaliser. If you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you are His. Do you see? Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how many goods you give to the poor. It doesn't matter anything. What the things that you do, it doesn't matter how good you think of yourself or highly you esteem yourself doesn't matter how often you boast of yourself, nothing makes the difference. The difference is, are you his? Because if you are none of his, then you are none of his. It seems to be through history that the higher men rose in the ranks of the church, the more holy they thought themselves to be. And yet, the more unlikely they were to be saved. The more unlikely they were to be saved. Chris Austin who was known as the Golden Tongue. He said this, and he asked it in his day, I wonder if any of the rulers of the church will be saved. Now, we think it's strange. We think it's strange that, that you could hear the story of a pastor who was convicted of his own gospel message and was born again by the very preaching of his own lips. This happened. This happened. Members of the congregation actually stood up and said, the pastor's just been saved. Now we think it's funny. 
But it's so true. It's not the outward appearance of man that makes a difference. If the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you are none of His. You are none of His. Now, Chris Austin lived about 1,500 years ago. I think anything's changed today. There is a contrast of possession in man. And we desire more than anything today to discover how that possession of the Spirit is attained. And you know what? Scripture has an answer. It has an answer. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we're going to hear this from the very lips of Christ. And He gives us an understanding of how the Spirit of God is attained. How that Spirit comes and makes its dwelling place within us. And we'll begin it from the very first verse. And he speaks about an individual that came to him by night. So John chapter 3, and we'll have a look at verse 1. Text here says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, what an interesting answer. What an interesting answer. Is that what Nicodemus was requesting? Is that what Nicodemus was asking? Not on the surface. You don't see that on the surface. He simply makes a statement to him, doesn't he? He says, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except that God be with him. I see, Jesus knows the inquiry of the heart, guys. That's why when we have faith and we trust in Christ for our salvation, it's the heart that's changed. We believe in our heart. Jesus knows the inquiry of Nicodemus's heart. That's why he answered Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. See, on the outside, you don't know where things are coming from. On the outside, you can sense that there's a change, but you don't understand it. Here, Jesus is using that same analogy with respect to the Spirit of God. It comes and indwells the heart. Notice that there is a spoken here, the flesh and the spirit. Did you notice that? And it links and it says every man is born of water. We're all born of water. We're all born of water. It speaks about those that are born of the flesh. We're born of nature. We're born of water. We're born of the flesh. But we're not yet born of the spirit, you see. To be born again, you must be born of the spirit. And that's what Jesus was clarifying. The contrast of possession is to indeed be one of his and not none of his. That's the contrast of possession. To be one of his and not none of his. And it's attained only if you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died on the cross for your sins. Skip down, you're still in the same chapter. Let's look at verse 16. And it gives us the provision that God's given us. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Remember what we said before? You can be baptised, you can pray so wonderfully, you can give abundantly, you can do all these things and none of them have any merit if you are none of his. None of them have any merit if you are none of his. How to become one of his? We believe. We believe. We believe that he died for our sins. And it's that which happens in the heart. Then you will be born of the Spirit and have him dwelling in you. Verse 10 of our passage says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 10. 
The fourth and last point that I want to make this morning is that there is a contrast of promise to man. There is a contrast of promise to man. And this, this is the most exciting of it all. And it says there in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8, it says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There is a contrast of promise to man, and it is defined as a contrast by the conjunction if. If. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. That's the contrast. It's defined by that very conjunction. If not, then not. If, then he dwells in you. Clearly then, if that spirit does not dwell in you, this promise of God does not apply to you. Only if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. It's what's known as the greatest evidence for Christianity. But you didn't know that. The greatest evidence for Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People think that Christianity is just some sort of, I don't know, mythical religion, an idea. But the greatest evidence, and when I say evidence, I mean proof of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ. That he lived as a historical figure is unquestioned, even amongst the most sceptical of reputable scholars. That he died on the cross is evidenced by historical writings, even outside of the Bible. You can read... Um, Tacitus, he spoke of him. Pliny the Younger, he spoke of him. Josephus, he spoke of him. These are, these are individuals that are outside of Scripture, recognise and write about Jesus actually living and dying on a cross. So you have external evidences for the reality of Christ and his death. That he rose from the dead is not only the most important fact of Christianity, for if he didn't rise from the dead, all preachers have preached the gospel, that is the good news, in vain for the last 2,000 years. But it is known to be the best proof fact in history when considered together with all the evidence that we have presented to us. Thomas Arnold was formerly Professor of History at Rugby and Oxford University, one of the world's greatest historians. He said this, he said, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God had given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. In the same way, Simon Greenleaf, he was one of the most skilled legal minds ever produced in the United States. He's the very man that developed the Harvard Law School and a top authority on the question of what constitutes as sound evidence. After going through and evaluating just the four gospel accounts from the point of view of their validity, because he understood that the gospels are valid documents, why did he understand that they were valid documents? Because we have more Gospels, ancient Gospels and fragments of those recordings than we have of any other archaeological or historical document. More than any other. And not only that they are historical documents, but they were written originally at a time where Jesus, as well as his disciples, well, not Jesus, but when his disciples still lived. So they were written very, very early. If you're going to discard those documents, friends, that you need to discard any history of Muhammad, which was written over 100 years after his death, any, any history of Alexander the Great written 500 years after his death, you have to discard all of that. Matter of fact, there's a document that you can actually find that while Napoleon Bonaparte was still alive, using the very methods from which sceptical scholars used to try and disprove the existence of Christ... This individual wrote a piece that proved that Napoleon Bonaparte does not exist. Now, mind you, he was alive right at the time. But using the very methods that they used to deny Christ, he used to deny the existence of Napoleon Bonaparte. You see, it has to be a fair inquirer. It has to be a logical mind. You can't be ruling out any of the pieces of the puzzle. But anyway, this is what he said. 
He says, it, it was therefore impossible that they, this is the disciples, could have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated, had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact, that Jesus rose from the dead, was testified by hundreds of witnesses who seen him after he was crucified, including his disciples. That each of the disciples, except John, died testifying for what they knew themselves to be true. For no man yet has died for what they know to be a lie. Don't compare what these men did to what the Muslims are doing today. So they're dying for what they don't know is a lie. And no man that gives his life in that way believes it to be false. He believes it to be true. But the disciples were there. They seen Jesus rise. They seen Jesus rise. They seen him appear before them after he was crucified. You don't survive a Roman crucifixion, people. You don't do it. It doesn't happen. It's never happened. Could you imagine for a second they used the swoon theory? The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus swooned on the cross. That he was there, he was still alive, his heart was beating. Even though the Gospel of John records for us that the spear, once it pierced his heart, water and blood came out. Do you know what that means? We discover that much later on in medical science. He's already dead. It pierced an area of the heart called the pericardium. Which when there's immense stress on the body and then death occurs, there's a lot more water in there than there is blood. It's gathered in there. Okay, But they use the swoon theory. And could you imagine Jesus Christ now? He swooned on the cross, he's in the tomb, and he was able in his dilapidated state, a state which almost all the skin of his body was ripped off because of the scourging, that he had the courage and the strength to be able to get up off the stone that he was lying on, roll away the heavy stone that was actually blocking the pass, struggle with the guards that were actually guarding the tomb, who were put there by the very Pharisees themselves, hobble his way all the way over to the house of Peter, and in such a miserable state, Peter rejoices that we can have the same resurrection as Christ. What madness is this? What madness is this? No. No, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most testified and evidential reality of the existence and the reality of Christ and Him rising from the dead. What a thrill. What a thrill. And the change of the disciples... From that miserable, grief-stricken state that they were in. Remember, they ran from Christ. Do you remember that? Remember in the Scriptures, they didn't stay with Him. When the guards came to take Him away, they ran. They fled. No man stood with Him. Peter. Peter, the one that said he would never deny Christ. In the height of His, of his love for Christ, believing that He was the very Christ, denied Him three times. Three times he denied him. They didn't stay. They ran. They saw him pierced. They're frightened. We, we followed this man. We followed this man believing that he was the very Christ. But should Christ die? Should Christ be put on, on the tree that the Bible, the scriptures in the Old Testament clearly teach us is a curse? Should that be the very Christ? Mortified they were. And fearing that they believed a lie ran they ran, they escaped, they ran away because they didn't want their lives to be caught up with Christ. They didn't want to die for him, especially if he's not who he says he was. Many prophets have gone by in their life. They died and what happened to the disciples? They scattered. Oh, this is what happened to Christ. They scattered. They scattered. Smite the shepherd and the sheep scatter. And that's exactly what happened. But what, what a change. What's happened? What happened to them to not only see something that's changed, but to be so fervent in their expression of who Jesus Christ is to all the world, willing to die for him, willing to die for him. What changed? What gave them such energy? What gave them? Straight after Jesus died, Peter says to the disciples, he goes, I'm going to go fishing. You know, let's uh, you know, do something that I've always done and it brings me joy and it's going to take my mind away from this miserable state. I'm going to go fishing. 
And they says, we're going to come too. So they all go fishing. And who do they see on the shore? Cooking fish. <laughs> it's the Lord. How did they recognise it was the Lord? He called out to them. They caught no fish. What did he say to them? Put the net on the right side of the boat. And what happened? An abundance of fish came up. What did Peter remember? He remembered that which he saw Christ do right at the very beginning. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He pulls off his clothes and jumps into the water and swims after the Lord and sees him cooking there, their breakfast on the shore. They died knowing Christ. Every single one of them died knowing Christ. How can you explain that? How can you explain that here 2,000 years later we're celebrating Christ? We celebrate him at communion. We preach the gospel. No, it's not a vain religion. It's the reality of who God is and what he's done for each and every one of us here. But that the very resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts and is so vitally important for Christians today, we can see expressly given to us in the book of Corinthians. Turn, please, in your Bible to Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Please bear with me for a few more moments as I just bring this incredible passage out. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My apologies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul here shows clearly why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. And if Jesus Christ was not raised, well, let's, let's listen to Paul and how, what he actually says about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verse 12. From verse 12 to 22. He says here, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead... Then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, who he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, yea, yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is the promise. This is the promise that is given to all them who live after the Spirit, who have the Spirit of God dwell in them, that they and they alone will have their mortal bodies quickened, that is, made alive, made alive. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit. And this is the contrast. This is the contrast. For just as there is a resurrection to life for those who are in Christ, so too is there a resurrection to death for those who are none of his. Guys, this is a really sombre portion of the message and a sombre portion of scripture. Please, please pay attention. You can turn to the Gospel of John for me. And we'll read it from the mouth of Jesus himself in chapter 5. And we'll read it from verse 25, that you might have the context of the passage. <clears throat> Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus speaks here saying, Verily, verily, that's another way of saying truly, truly. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath given life in himself, 
so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. There is a resurrection appointed. There is a resurrection appointed to each one of us. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Brethren, that's not an appointment any of us are going to miss. Now, the judgment there is referring to those that are in unbelief. This resurrection of damnation is also known by another phrase. It's called the second death. It's referred to as the second death. Turn to Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter 20. Here, Scripture is referring to that period of 1,000 years, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, yet future. It's an event, yet future. It hasn't come yet, but it is promised that it will come, yet future. And he's speaking specifically of those who will reign with Christ during that time. So Revelation chapter 20 will take our text from verse 6. It says here, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Oh, it's mentioned there, isn't it? But is it, it's not really clear what the second death is, is it? It's there. We see it there. We know that it's vitally important because it, it contrasts itself with those that are blessed. Okay? It speaks, it's contrasting itself by the, with those that are blessed and those that are holy and those that have passed the, path, part of the first resurrection. But here it speaks about the second death. <coughs> what is the second death? Turn one chapter forward, chapter 21 of Revelation. Verse 7. Revelation chapter 21 verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is such a contrast of promise to man that we cannot even begin to imagine. As we spoke of the lack of ability even for darkness and light, for cold and heat, for height and depth to describe the contrast of the desires of the mind after the flesh and after the mind of the spirit, even more, even more, can we not find an earthly similitude of the contrast between heaven and hell? We can't even begin to imagine the contrast between those two. Suffice to say that the misery of hell is antithetically measured against the glory of heaven. You would know your state. You would know your state. If you would know whether the Spirit of God dwells in you or you are in the flesh, that you would know the heart of Christ, that you would know the reason He came and the reason He died, the reason He rose, that you would have life, eternal life. I think you would know it. And that you would choose life. That you would choose life. We've often said that those who find themselves in hell have willfully done so by ignoring all warning. How much more does that apply to those of you who are hearing this discourse today? There's contrast all the way through this text. There's a contrast all the way through this text. Nothing, nothing is more vitally important. Nothing 
is more vitally important. Not just knowing where you stand today, but choosing life. Nothing is more important. There's a contrast of mind in man, verse 5. There's a contrast of manner in man, verses 6 to 8. There's a contrast of possession of man, verses 9 to 10. And here there is a contrast of promise to man. Father, only you know the hearts of those that are here. I don't know them, Lord. I don't know whether they know you. I don't know whether they think they know you. I know I know you. And I know, dear Father, that your spirit bears witness to each one of us. And even now, dear Father, your spirit works expressly to convict those that are, whose hearts are responding to the gospel. Father, let their hearts respond to its full tale. Let them know Christ. Let them believe. And let no fleshly desires of their minds stop them, dear Father. And I ask you, dear Lord, that you would be with these people today and that you would help them know the importance of this message for them particularly. That they would put their mind, their, their, their names, dear Father, in front of all of those, dear Lord, who have the Spirit of God. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with them. Open their hearts that they may know and see. In Jesus' name I thank you. Amen.